When I was about six or seven years of age, my parents brought our family back to the States from being on the mission field. And I had this memory of my mom speaking at a missions banquet. And I was sitting there at a table with other people. And at the end of her talk, she got kind of emotional and she announced to everybody that her eldest son, me, uh, was going to be going to Detroit's Children's Hospital for a special exam in the morning. And would you please pray that God would touch his life? And so people prayed for me. And the next day, we got in the car and made our way to Detroit's Children's Hospital. I guess uh, prior to that, they had taken me for a physical and found an abnormality uh, with my heart. And so my uncle, who was a physician, made the appointment at Children's Hospital and he and my dad and I went all the way down there, and for that entire day, I got poked everywhere. People listened to my heart, asked me all kinds of questions, ran different tests. At the end of a very long day, we went home, and sometime later, I asked my mom if everything was okay. I was a little bit confused about what was going on, and I'll never forget her looking at me, and she's actually done this several times uh, throughout my life when I have asked her about the incident she just smiled with a calmness on her face and said, Dale, there's nothing for you to worry about. Jesus healed you. And I've accepted that. Oh, by the way, uh, about eight years ago, something very similar, strange, happened. I'll tell you more about it later on. But for now, I want to talk to you about your heart. Not your physical heart. I do hope your physical heart's in good shape. I want to talk about your spiritual heart. I also want to talk about my spiritual heart. Lord and I have had a lot of conversations during this summer sabbatical, which I thank our elders and you as a congregation for allowing me to have. We've had a lot of talks about my heart and the heart of his church these days. And as I've done some deep examination of my heart and the heart of the church, I've come to realize that our hearts aren't so healthy. My heart hasn't been so healthy. A lot of us honestly have troubled hearts, especially these last couple of years with everything that's taking place from the pandemic to the social unrest, the political upheaval, to all the things that are happening in the world. You wonder when's the next you know, foot going to fall, so to speak. And it's left a lot of us with troubled hearts, hearts that are worried, hearts that are anxious, hearts that are fearful, hearts that are heavy, hearts that are restless, hearts that are discouraged and depressed, hearts that feel a hopelessness, hearts that are longing for a solution and an answer, hearts desiring security. Maybe you know a little bit of that heart pain yourself. Or maybe you see it in somebody that you love and care about. When I was thinking about the spiritual condition in my heart and where I want it to be versus where it is, I was reminded of some words I read about a dozen years ago, that grabbed me then and surfaced and grabbed me again. There were words written by Dallas Willard, the late philosopher who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. Dallas uh, wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart and the Soul. And in that book, he said some things that I want to share with you and just invite you to listen. Here's what he wrote. He says, when we open ourselves to the writings of the New Testament, when we absorb into our minds and hearts in one of the Gospels, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us 
is that we are looking into another world and another life. It is a world that seems open to us and beckons us to enter. We feel its call. The amazing promises to those who give their life to this new world through their confidence in Jesus leap out at us from the page. For example, we read Jesus' own words that those who give themselves to him will receive living water, the Spirit of God himself, that will keep them from ever again being thirsty, being driven and ruled by unsatisfied desires. And that this water will become a well or spring of such water, gushing up to eternal life. John chapter 4, verse 14. Indeed, it will even become rivers of living water flowing from the center of the believer's life to a thirsty world. John chapter 7, verse 38. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, yes, it makes me thirsty. When I hear those words, it draws me into it. I go, yes, Jesus, that's what I want. I want to be a, I want to be a spiritual artesian well. I want to be filled with your presence filled with your love, filled with your joy, filled with your peace, filled with your kindness, and overflowing so that those around me benefit from all of that. But then Willard goes on and he writes this. He says, but the life they see there is so unlike what they know from their own experience. This is true even though they may be quite faithful to their church in the ways prescribed and really do have Jesus Christ as their only hope. Therefore, the clear New Testament presentation of the life we are unmistakably offered in Christ only discourages them or makes them feel hopeless. And maybe, maybe you get that. Maybe you, like me, have looked at the Scriptures and looked at the promises and what the Christian life can be, but then looked at your heart and your soul and, well, you feel more like a dry, empty cistern than a vivacious, spiritual, artesian well. Maybe you feel like a sailboat with a sail hoisted, but there's no wind on the lake. You're just rocking back and forth. How you wish for that invisible wind to fill your sail and move you along. Maybe you feel like a heart patient on the sidelines watching somebody with a healthy heart run and jump and dance and skip and enjoy life. But just taking a step leaves you almost breathless. This summer, the Lord has shown me that my heart is not so healthy. That it has indeed been affected by the world and by the things that have happened around me. And perhaps you feel the same way. You know, sometimes when you recognize that you're not experiencing what the promises of Scripture say is available to you, you can begin to wonder if it's not meant for you, if it's only meant for the saints in the Scriptures, only for the apostles, or maybe not for us. Or maybe it's meant for the Billy Grahams of life, the Mother Teresas of life, but not you and not me. But then again, you go back to Scriptures and you read things like this in John chapter 10. Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them, that is all of us, a rich and satisfying life. 
So I guess my question is, do you have a rich, satisfying life, a rich and satisfied heart? Do I have a rich and satisfied heart? Or has a thief come in, the culture, the world, our sinful selves, and robbed us of that consistent, satisfied, and fulfilled heart that we all long for? I decided this summer that that's going to change for me. I don't want to be like that anymore. I've decided that I want to know and experience what I read and I see in the Scriptures. And I want my life to testify to the power and the presence of God. And I want to lead a church that has the same experience as well. So I long for myself. It's what I long for you. I've thought a lot about the church this summer while I've been on sabbatical. Not just Wooddale Church, but the church in general, the church in America. And I thought to myself, you know, we're all concerned about the direction our country's going. I think the church somehow lost its saltiness. Somehow we have become very corporate, very well organized, very well run. And we've got programs, we've got talent, we've got strategies. But it's like what Paul said, we have the form of godliness, but the way we behave and act denies the power thereof. Church needs to come alive. The only way it can come alive is if all of our hearts come alive, come alive to the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ comes alive in us. If that's your desire, then I want to invite you to Go with me on a journey for the next 11 months. We're going to journey through the Gospel of John together in a series that I've entitled From Head to Leb, The Most Important Journey of Your Life. This is going to be so significant. You're going to make sure if you're coming to our campuses that you come early because I don't know if there'll be any seats left. It's going to be that big a series, that powerful, that impactful. You're wondering to yourself, what in the world is a leb? Well, answer that question. Let me refer you to a day when Jesus was asked by somebody what the most important commandment is. And here's how he responded. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So when Jesus talks about all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Put those three things together and you get leb, L-E-B. It's the Hebrew word for what we would think of as the heart. If you think about the heart, if I can sketch it out for you, imagine this is your heart, my heart. It describes the convergence of three streams. So imagine this is a stream coming into the heart. We're going to call it the stream of our thoughts or our thinking. Imagine another stream feeding into the heart. We'll call it the stream of our emotions or our feeling life. And if you imagine one more stream, we'll call it the stream of our will or our choices. And so where the will, the emotions, and the thoughts come together, that is the leb. And that is the leb that the Lord wants to transform in your life and the lead that the Lord wants to transform in my life. But obviously, our lead is in trouble <laughs> because our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that they wanted to run their own lives. They didn't want 
to listen to the heart of God. They wanted to inform their own hearts and live the way they wanted to. And we've all been born with kind of a rebellious love. In fact, Jeremiah said about our hearts that they're so rebellious, we don't even know how rebellious they are. And what we need is a renovation, as Dallas Willard says. We need a renovation of that heart. And it's a renovation that begins at salvation, but you know, salvation isn't one and done. Salvation is a process. What I mean by that is you receive Christ, but then he goes to work renovating the hearts. And the reality is some of us have just shut down the remodeling, the renovation. And I'm asking you to join me in letting him have all your heart. All your heart. Now, I want to invite you to begin reading the Gospel of John with me. Because John is going to be our guide to the heart of God. You may be wondering yourself, well, why did you choose John? Why not Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or any of the other epistles, any of the other writers in the New Testament, or Old Testament for that fact? I mean, they're all inspired by God. Well, I chose John for a very important reason. And I want to describe to you why, because I think you're going to find it pretty significant. I, I want to take you to the 13th chapter of John for just a moment, because I want you to grab a picture in your mind. I want you to create this image in your mind. I want you to keep it there for our series. It's in the upper room. Jesus is celebrating the last Passover with his disciples before he will go on trial and then be crucified. They're gathered in the upper room, and Luke tells us in his gospel that during the course of the night, the disciples began to argue with each other about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And you probably know that scene where Jesus gets up. They're all sitting by low-lying tables. The way they did it in the Middle East at that time is they would sit on cushions. They would kind of rest on their left elbow and they would eat with the right hand because the left hand was considered unclean. So you can imagine all the disciples with Jesus in the middle kind of leaning on the left elbow he goes around, he washes all their feet. That had to be uncomfortable. He did for them what they should have done for each other and for him. He models for them what it really means to be a servant. And when he's done, he goes back to his position on the cushions. He announces to them that one of them is about to betray him. Now I want to pick it up with you in John 13. When he had said these things, Jesus was greatly distressed in spirit and testified, I tell you the solemn truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another, worried and perplexed to know which of them he was talking about. One of his disciples, and this is key, the one Jesus loved, okay? This is how John refers to himself in his gospel. The one Jesus loved. It says, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was at the table to the right of Jesus in a place of honor. So, if you imagine me representing Jesus, I'm on my left elbow, I'm eating. John is right here. He's on his left elbow. Right? He's right in, he's right in front of Jesus. Okay? Says, so Simon Peter gestured to this disciple to ask Jesus, because John's next to Jesus, who it was he was referring to that's going to betray him. Now look what John does for a second time. He says, 
Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to himself again twice as the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaned back against Jesus' chest and asked him, Lord, who is it? So imagine John is here. He turns his head back, right? So his head turns back to Jesus. And he rests his head on the chest or the bosom of Jesus. And that's the picture I want you to freeze for a moment. Because in the Greek, the word that's being used there for the chest of Jesus is the word stethos, S-T-H-E-O-S, from which we get, and now you know why I'm wearing this, stethoscope. What does a trained medical professional do with a stethoscope? Well, they put it in their ears, right? And they take that piece and they put it up against your chest and with it, they can hear your lungs, and more importantly, they hear your heart. Shh. She or he listens and can tell an awful lot about your heart by how it sounds, how it beats. Imagine John has his ear pressed against the heart of God. He hears the heartbeat of the Lord. Not just physically, but spiritually, John heard the heartbeat of the Lord. But something else I want you to notice. Remember I said twice, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that might sound arrogant at first. Like, what's he doing? I mean, is he trying to say that that he was loved by Jesus more than the other disciples were loved by Jesus? No, that's, that's not what John is saying. See, John writes his gospel last. It wasn't written until probably between 70 and 100 A.D. And John would have written it as an old man. Tradition has him writing it from Ephesus. He might be in his 90s now. When John was a young man, Jesus gave him and his brother James, a nickname. Do you know what it is? He called them the sons of thunder. <laughs> now, why do you think he called them the sons of thunder? Were they loud? Were they obnoxious? Were they angry? Were they judgmental? Were they ready to fight? As an old man, John no longer calls himself or thinks of himself as a son of thunder. Now, in that time with Jesus, during the three, three and a half years that they were together on earth, and since then, his revelation of Jesus, the book we call Revelation, the moving, the working of the Holy Spirit in his life, since the book of Acts, something has happened to John. The thunder has gone out of John, and in place, the love of God has drenched him, saturated him, and wells up in his life. We're going to be referring throughout our series to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, three little letters that John wrote. If you read those letters, he just talks about love constantly. There's been a change in John's life. John, perhaps unlike any of the disciples, was more affected by the love of Christ and therefore, he speaks much about the love of Christ. And it is the love of Christ that needs to 
fill our hearts, overtake our hearts, and well up and out of us and spill all over the people who are around us. Our spouse, our children, our friends. It is only the love of Christ that's going to help this world at all. And a troubled heart can't be filled with the love of Christ. So we're going to journey with John and Jesus for the next 11 months. And we're going to get to know the heart of Jesus to the point that it overtakes us. Here are four things that I desire for myself and I desire for you in this series we're going to begin. Number one, I want you and me to learn what it means to rest our heads on the chest of Jesus and daily hear the heartbeat of God. Number two, I want us to know beyond all doubt that you and I are unconditionally loved by our Creator and our God. See, if we don't know that, the world won't know that. And if we don't treat each other that way, the world will never be attracted to His church. Number three, I want that love to so fill you and me that it gushes out of our lives, our families, the church, and even spills over onto strangers and everyone we meet. And number four, I want you and me to be so possessed by the love of God that when others encounter us, they encounter Christ himself. That's my prayer for my life these next 11 months. It's my prayer for our church. It's my prayer for you. Of course, it begs the question, can that really happen? The answer to that question is, yes, it can. Even Paul testifies the fact that it happened in his life. And, you know, Paul was not an easy guy. I mean, he was off to arrest the Christians. He was grumpy and angry and murderous in his hatred toward Christians until Jesus ambushed him on the road to Damascus and totally changed his life. It took a while for Paul to soften up. Ask Barnabas or Mark. He wasn't always easy to get along with. But as he got older in life, the love of God did something powerful in him. Read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter of the Bible. Paul writes that later on in life after some changes have happened in his life, after God's love has been working on him. And in his letter to Ephesians, he says something very dramatic about the love of God that I want you to grab with me these next few minutes. It's powerful. It'll change your life. Let's look at a few of the verses together. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, I pray, he's praying for really all of us, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, the glorious unlimited resources of Jesus, he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit. That's the leb. That's the leb we're talking about, this inner strength through his spirit. He, Paul's saying, I'm praying that that part of you, that leb in you, will become empowered by the very presence of the spirit of the living God. He goes on, the next verse, he says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. One of the things we're going to talk about through the Gospel of John is the difference between believing and trusting. At the end of John chapter 2, it says, There are many who believed on Jesus, but he did not trust himself to them because he knew the hearts of men and women. 
It's not enough just to believe about Jesus. The question is, am I willing to trust him with my whole life? If I want to experience that inner presence, that transformation, that love, that heart of God beating in my chest, then I have to be willing to trust him, which takes us to our next verse where he says, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Now notice he says, your roots will grow down into what? Into God's love. Into God's love. Let's talk about that for a minute. Years ago when we lived in California, uh, a dear friend of mine helped me landscape my backyard. He was a landscaper. He's been on HGTV. He was just he was also our youth pastor. He's just a dear friend to this very day. And I love redwood trees, and I wanted to plant some redwood trees. And so we brought in about seven of them. And uh, Mark was showing me how to dig the, uh, um, the hole for the roots, you know, what size to make it. It was really large. And then when we put the tree root in, the ball of the tree in, he told me to go get some corrugated uh, plastic pipe, which I did about this long, okay, He says, put one next to each side of each tree and fill it full of drain rock. So I I put the the, uh, pipes on both sides. I filled them both with drain rock, and then we filled everything with dirt and covered it up. And Mark said, the reason we did that is so that when it does rain or when you're watering the trees, the water will go down through those stones all the way down to the bottom of the root ball, and it will feed and nourish the root, so that it will grow down and deep. He says, if you don't do that, the roots are going to grow up and out and end up making a weak tree and destroying the ark. Well, I'm so happy to tell you that those trees, I saw them a while back, have skyrocketed up into the air. Their roots have gone deep, so their height has gone long and far. When we root our lives, our minds, our wills, our emotion, when we root our bodies in the love of God, when we're feeding off the love of God, that's when we grow tall and strong in Christ. But when we're rooted out into materialism and rooted out into politics and rooted out into into the media and rooted out into gossip and rooted out into all the things the world offers us, it just, it it makes us weak. And the slightest wind comes along, we topple over. We've got to root ourselves down deep. Paul goes on, he says, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. So Paul's saying, look, get into the love of God. Notice he's not saying root yourself into Bible knowledge, root yourself into organization, root yourself into classes, root yourself into seminary, root yourself into materialism, root yourself into social media. He's saying, root yourself into the love of God. Let the love of God overtake you, consume you each and every day. Live out of knowing how much you are loved by God. And then he says, may you then experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I don't know about you, but if you read those verses slowly and carefully, 
That's the life God wants you to be living now. So in touch, so rooted in the love of God that the infinite goodness and love of God is just flowing in you and through you and out of you. And that's what we're after in this series. Do you believe that God wants to do that in your life? In my life, in our life together, I do. I believe that with all my heart. About eight years ago, I went down to Mayo Clinic for a physical. And uh, they did the chest x-ray and the blood draw and all the kinds of things that they do to give you a, a good going over and a good physical. And uh, then we went and saw some of the doctors, the specialists, and, and we sat down, my wife and I sat down with the cardiologist. And she began talking to me about, you know, my stats and my numbers and whatever. And, and then uh, she looked at me kind of funny and she said, you know, for a moment, she said, we have some very serious concerns about you, Mr. Hummel. I said, oh? She goes, yes, something showed up on your x-ray that could be rather serious. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh boy, mom, I thought you said I'd been healed. And then she looked at me, she goes, but when we sent it to radiology to have them look it over carefully, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing there. You're okay, Mr. Hummel. And I just had this flashback to when I was a kid. It reminded me of the power of God to heal, to make whole. Not just our physical hearts and our physical lives, but most importantly, because these hearts are going to fail someday, these physical hearts, our spiritual hearts. The healing of Christ for your heart is available. And you don't have to wait 11 months. It can begin right now. Will you pray with me? Will you commit with me? These next 11 months to leading your ear into the heartbeat of God and letting it overtake your own heartbeat. Every week I'm going to be giving you a challenge. And my challenge to you this weekend is this. I want to challenge you to read Ephesians chapter 3. And I want you to read verses 16 through the end of the chapter. And I want you to take those verses that we looked at in Ephesians chapter 3 beginning at verse 16. And I want you to memorize them. Could you try that? Just start working at it. Memorizing them. And then turn them into a personal prayer. Put your name in the verses. Make it a prayer for yourself. Make it a prayer for your spouse, for your children, for your friends. Let it saturate you. Let it become part of you. And I believe you'll already begin to experience a change in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we want to commit ourselves to this series asking that in the next 11 months you will do a mighty, powerful heart change in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Next weekend, I want you to join me because we're going to explore why it is people reject God as the answer for their heart trouble. You won't want to miss it. It's going to help you. It's going to help you help others. We'll see you then.